Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latour. Noir City Austin returns May 18th through 20th to Austin's Alamo Drafthouse Ritz with 10 classic noirs. Film Noir from A to B will take audiences back in time with a program of five genuine A and B double bills. The lineup includes the FNF's most recent 35mm restoration, Felix Feist's The Man Who Cheated Himself from 1950. The festival will also present Paramount's new digital restoration of Byron Haskins' I Walk Alone, the Library of Congress's 35mm restoration of William Dieterle's The Accused, and the FNF's 35mm preservation of Cy Enfield's The Underworld Story. Czar of Noir Eddie Muller will host Friday and Saturday films. FNF board member Alan K. Rohde will introduce the Sunday features, and he'll be signing copies of his acclaimed biography, Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film. Visit the Alamo Drafthouse Austin Ritz website for scheduled program notes and tickets. And for our friends in the Northeast, prepare yourselves for the first Noir City Boston this June, specifically June 8th through 10th at the Brattle Theater on Harvard Square in Cambridge. Details and tickets for the three-day Noir City Boston screenings are available on the Brattle Theater's website at brattlefilm.org. And now, let's talk to our guest for this month. Our guest this month is Tom Doherty. He's a professor of American Studies at Brandeis University, and he's the author of a number of books, including Hollywood Censor, Joseph I. Breen and the Production Code Administration, and Hollywood and Hitler, 1933-1939. to His latest book, which we'll be discussing here today, is called Show Trial, Hollywood, HUAC, and the Birth of the Blacklist. Tom, thanks for joining us. I have pleasure. Let's start with some of the basics of this crucial period in Hollywood history. When people talk about the blacklist, they sometimes combine a few concepts that are somewhat related to each other, but they don't all refer to exactly the same thing. HUAC, the Hollywood Ten, McCarthyism, the Red Scare, etc. Which specific events and people out of all of those are the focus of your book? Well, um, my book is focused on the October 1947 hearings launched by the House Committee on Un-American Activities, popularly known as HUAC for purposes of pronunciation. Uh, uh, And it's the first round of really sensationalistic, Hollywood-focused hearings by uh, the American legislature after the Second World War, where they go to Hollywood to investigate alleged communist subversion. Uh, HUAC is often in the popular imagination confused with the McCarthy Committee, which doesn't really come until much later, 1953. And what we think of as post-war McCarthyism, you know, that sort of big umbrella term for the repressions of the post-war era, usually related to issues of free expression and popular media, uh, is actually an event that happens three years after the launch of the McCarthy era, which is, uh, you might say, October 1947. So Senator McCarthy himself both sort of predates and postdates the era that he gave his name to. And uh, it's, it's amazing to me how many people often say something like Senator McCarthy's House on american Activities Committee. And if you just think of it for a minute, you realize that, of course, McCarthy is in the U.S. Senate and uh, HUAC is in the House, a different uh, you know, part of the bicameral legislature. But it's like it's you can't blast it out of the popular imagination with dynamite. So my uh, book is focused on this particular moment in American culture in the post-war era. 
and uh, not to be confused with any other moment. It's kind of the, the first launching pad, really, for that cluster of events that we think of as McCarthyism. And kind of the Red Scare in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and the red, red Scare is kind of a, you know, a condescending term uh, for, uh, for this era. Uh, and, and, um, and the first Red Scare, uh, of course, was in uh, the wake of the Great War with the, uh, the raids by A. Mitchell Palmer, the Attorney General at the time. Uh, but in, uh, I, I think I'd probably begin this era with uh, Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech in 1946, and it goes on, of course, until you know the 1970s in some ways. Uh, but you can't—I don't think Red Scare really sort of captures it. To me, it always sounds a little too frivolous, and it might let people think that, well, you know, communism wasn't a real threat to human freedom in the post-war era. I think if you think of 1947. And this is when I was doing the book, one of the problems I, I had is, although the book was focused on these hearings of, in October 1947, and most of your listeners probably have images in their heads from newsreel coverage of the hearings, because they were widely covered in the popular media, and there have been a lot of documentaries that have used the you know, famous footage of Dalton Trumbo, the screenwriter, and John Howard Lawson, another one of the screenwriters, uh, you know, being you know, uh, uh, pulled from the table by uh, the uh, uh, you know, federal authorities as they're uh, yelling at J. Parnell Thomas, the uh, chairman of the House Committee on American Activities, that if you sort of think of this era, you're probably thinking of those kind of images. And you know, very, a very famous moment and kind of iconic moments. But to understand what's going on at 47, you really have to go back about 15 years or so that everything that happens in 47 is sort of, you know, backfire and blowback from disputes in the motion picture industry in the 1930s and during the Second World War. And so one of the problems I had in the book, frankly, was uh, given the backstory to the main story of October 47, and in brief, the backstory involves the great labor disputes in Hollywood in the 1930s and all the political agitation that went under the umbrella of uh, the Popular Front. And then during the Second World War, the great alliance between Hollywood and Washington uh, in the fight against fascism and how the motion picture industry was marshaled as a medium of public communication and propaganda to instill wartime values in the American public, the, the kind of values that were needed to fight the Second World War. So it wasn't just educating Americans to, uh, to fight the Nazis and, and to encourage the, you know, the patriotic crusade, but it was actually this process of instruction through Hollywood entertainment to instill in Americans uh, the values needed to fight uh, preeminently the values of tolerance, that you had to get along with the people in the foxhole or the people that were in the B-17 with, uh, with you, and teamwork, that you all had to sort of do your bit. And uh, it wasn't important necessarily to be the, you know, the hero charging the beach or, or the pilot who always gets the girl, but everybody on the B-17, uh, whether you're the radio man or the gunner or the, uh, the navigator, all, you all have a role in in the enterprise. And so one thing HUAC gets really correct is that movies matter. And we kind of didn't think that 
before the Second World War, that you know, the way the motion picture industry always configured itself was as uh, mindless entertainment, right? Escapism. You know, you can be with Errol Flynn in Sherwood Forest or Dorothy on the Yellow Brick Road. And Hollywood always said, come to the movies to escape your woes. And what's happening is, you know, great entertainment. And after the Second World War, everybody knows that's not true. Everybody knows that movies are a powerful transmission belt for values and that what the movies say and communicate really matter. So as we're having these great debates over you know, freedom and oppression, the constitutional limits of uh, uh, freedom of expression, you know, the, 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 the upcoming fight against Soviet totalitarianism, it's in a way kind of natural and maybe even appropriate that movies are one of the first places we go to because the Second World War has taught us how powerful movies are as ideological weapons. That relates to the title of your book, which starts with the phrase show trial, that implies and incorporates more than one interpretation of that phrase for the various parties involved. So how have you applied that phrase for the events that you've written about? Well, uh, a show trial is sort of a public arena to fight out the various uh, ideologies. And both sides of the, uh, the dais, both the House Committee on Un-American Activities and the uh, Hollywood 19, which were the name for the 19 people who were subpoenaed by the House to come to Washington to testify and explain their beliefs, but who came to Washington unwillingly under subpoena and under threat of uh, prosecution, that both sides of the dais actually wanted to use the uh, committee hearings as a way to promulgate their own ideology. So, of course, the uh, the congressmen wanted to show that uh, Hollywood was maybe less than patriotic, if not a hotbed of uh, communist subversion. But on the other side of the table, the screenwriters, uh, a couple directors, a producer who were uh, comprised the unfriendly 19 or the Hollywood 19, as they were called, they also wanted to use the hearings as a way to push back against the committee. They really wanted to take on the committee and give it a, you know, a firm counter-argument, and they thought that they could you know, uh, bring the committee uh, to, to bear by uh, uh, a superior argument. And so they really wanted that forum to, to defy the committee and express uh, their, their own beliefs. So in that sense, it was a show trial uh, because it was being acted out as a kind of drama where both sides sort of knew their lines in advance. Uh, of course, the other echo of show trial in the post-war era, and this is really, I think, uh, truer of the subsequent House Committee for American Activities hearings in the, uh, in the early and later 50s, was that the witness as in communist show trials, would have to uh, prove their, uh, their patriotism uh, by naming names and by recanting their previous beliefs and then promising to redouble their patriotic efforts. So the show trial probably has at least a couple of meanings in the, in the course of this particular investigation. And when we now look back at the blacklist and all of the ultimately hundreds of people who were blacklisted from Hollywood at that time, most yeah. of that, if I understand, really did happen as a result of those 50s hearings. So the 47 hearing put it all into the public square in this huge way for the first time. And there was the Hollywood 10 who ultimately went to jail. But there weren't really, there wasn't a mass blacklisting of people that went into effect in, a, in, in, in essence until a few years later. Well, for, for the 47 hearings actually sort of implement the, the sort of animating document of the blacklist. 
which right after the hearing, the hearings end in, uh, on October 30th, 1947. And there are basically two weeks of hearings, and, and they actually, a lot of people thought they'd go longer, three or four weeks. It was such, you know, great publicity, such a great show, and the committee said it had so much to investigate. Uh, but uh, after, uh, you know, by the end of the second week, you, you get the feeling that Hollywood is actually winning a lot of the debate. Uh, the first week was devoted to friendly witnesses, and many of these witnesses uh, the, uh, especially the representatives of uh, the Screen Actors Guild, both the former and present president of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, two former presidents, the, the actors Robert Montgomery and George Murphy, and then the present president of the Screen Actors Guild, a, a guy named Ronald Reagan. When they testify, they actually testify with a lot of kind of eloquence and fairness and uh, they, they, they really show, I think, to most Americans that Hollywood is, of course, no hotbed of communism, that you have these, you know, a decent men expressing, you know, good old American values. And, of course, they don't want communists in, in Hollywood, uh, but you know, people have freedom of expression. And Ronald Reagan himself says that the Communist Party is legal and that if the American people get all the facts, then they're going to make the right decisions. Uh, so the first week is really goes well for Hollywood. And then the second week, when the unfriendlies testify, the, the images that play for us as, you know, heroic artists speaking truth to power and, you know, an hysterical committee chairman, you know, gaveling down into silence some of the screenwriters, at the time played really badly for Hollywood. Because at the time, I think it's fair to say most Americans felt that, you know, if a committee of Congress asks you whether you're a communist, you should be proud to say, of course I'm not a communist, of course I'd fight for my country if there's, a, there's another war. And the, uh, the Hollywood 10 didn't do that. They said the committee had no right at all to ask them any personal opinions, and they had no right to ask them about their party or labor affiliations, and said so in defiant, loud, and in the context of the time, what would have been seen as kind of obnoxious loudness. So those images, which play today, like speaking truth to power, did not play well for Hollywood in, the, uh, in 1947. Uh, but at the same time, the committee is being criticized by major organs of uh, uh, the, the print media and on radio as uh, really conducting a kind of circus for the cameras. So they end early on October 30th. They end very suddenly and surprisingly on the, uh, the 10th day of the hearings. So it looks, when the hearings end, like you know, Hollywood has really come off well. But in the days that follow, it, it seems that, America, uh, that the committee has succeeded in proving that there are a lot of communists working in Hollywood and that the 10 uh, screenwriters who refuse to cooperate, the committee produces their Communist Party cards. And in the context of 1947, having you know highly salaried screenwriters, you know, working for you know, three, four thousand dollars a week, pledging their loyalty to the Communist Party does not sit well with the American public. There are reports of uh, you know motion picture trailers featuring you know uh, various Hollywood stars being hissed in movie theaters, and there are. Uh, uh, reports that uh, the American Legion is planning a boycott, and the one thing you do not want in 1947 is the American Legion uh, putting up pickets in outside of movie theaters across America. So that November, 
Eric Johnston, the head of the Motion Picture Association of America, calls together the moguls at a you know, notorious conference at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and issues something called the Waldorf Declaration, sometimes called the Waldorf uh, Statement, in which the major studios pledge not to employ a communist or somebody who doesn't deny that they are a communist, and the peremptorily uh, firing of the Hollywood Ten, the people who have defied the, the committee the previous month. And that's the implementing document of the blacklist. And that's when the blacklist in Hollywood really starts, when, uh, when uh, not only are the Hollywood Ten fired, but other actors are forced to recant their progressive positions. And a group that's especially affected is uh, a group called the Committee for the First Amendment, which were a group of Hollywood actors, directors, and screenwriters, not communists, not part of the Hollywood 10 or, or the Unfriendly 19, and certainly not on the side of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, but a kind of a group of mainstream liberals and progressives in Hollywood. Uh, and the face of the committee are sort of the most glamorous couple in Hollywood at the time, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And they board a plane in Los Angeles and fly out to Washington in the middle of the committee hearings and uh, are there to protest the tactics of the House Committee on American Activity, which, uh, Activities, which is you know, kind of reckless accusations and circulating people's names in the public sphere uh, with uh, no evidence and uh, no chance for the, the, uh, the accused to defend themselves. And so they land to great fanfare uh, the weekend between uh, the, two, uh, the two weeks and uh, that they're uh, kind of put out now as the face of Hollywood opposition to the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And this group, too, gets kind of uh, caught in the buzzsaw of the politics of this, this era. And many of these people, including Humphrey Bogart, probably most famously, have to recant their support, not for the Hollywood Ten, but even for the First Amendment. They have to say that they had somehow gotten suckered in to supporting the Hollywood Ten when they actually really hadn't. And this, I think, really gives you a sense of where we're at in this era. And one of the things I wanted to uh, kind of recapture is just the, the sort of, I guess, hysteria of an era in which you could not take a middle ground position, a reasonable middle ground position, a liberal position, in which you said, of course, I'm not a communist and I don't support the communist agenda. And I certainly do not uh, support the House Committee on Un-American Activities, uh, oppression of First Amendment rights and freedom of assembly rights, but that becomes impossible given the passions of the era. And even the Committee on the First Amendment, which was not a communist front group, which was not comprised of communists, uh, cannot kind of walk that tightrope middle line. Let's talk about some of the different factions from Hollywood who ended up involved in the, the hearings, as you mentioned. Let's start with the Hollywood studio bosses and executives who were considered friendly witnesses by HUAC in that they were willing to discuss the issue of communism in movies with the committee. The main point of contact between Hollywood and the government was, and still is, the Industry Trade Association, the MPAA, Motion Picture yeah. Association of America, which in 1947 was headed, as you mentioned, by Eric Johnston, who had formerly been the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Let's hear some of his testimony from the October 1947 HUAC hearings. We feel that 
There is very little, if any, communist propaganda in our pictures. Please bear in mind that we are doing business in a worldwide basis. And when you hurt us, you hurt our pocketbook worldwide and you hurt the American nation worldwide too. Because the best conveyor of goodwill between our nation and other nations, in my opinion, is the American motion picture. A picture is worth 10,000 words as the old Chinese proverb goes. In many of these countries, our newspapers do not reach, our radio cannot reach, but they have an idea of America from American motion pictures. We don't want the, uh, the feeling to go out to these countries that American motion pictures contain <coughs> communist propaganda and that they will be excluded from these areas. It would be bad for us financially. We think it would be bad for the American people and bad for peace of the world if that went out. We do not attempt, or in any way, I have not attempted to in any way, criticize the members of the committee. We feel and that you're doing a job which has to be done. We have criticized sometimes, Mr. Vale, the method in which it was done, because we feel that people should not be smeared with communism unless they have a fair trial and opportunity of proving whether they are or not. Now, that's the American tradition. Johnston's testimony represented the overall approach that the Hollywood studio executives took toward the hearings. As we just heard there, he emphasized that Hollywood was projecting American values around the world and that Hollywood was okay with HUAC investigating for subversive activity, but the downside of the hearings was you're painting us with too broad a brush. It's unfair mm -hmm. to essentially, it's unfair to conduct a trial without playing by the rules of a trial where you'd have evidence on both sides, you'd have cross-examination. None of that was permitted by HUAC at their hearings. So how had the studio bosses come to decide on those things as their overall strategy towards HUAC? Uh, well, of course, the last thing the Hollywood studio bosses wanted was to be configured in any way as an unpatriotic organization. And from their point of view, they're kind of stunned to have uh, in the U.S. government, which they had been cooperating with since December 7, 1941 at least, uh, uh, charge them with being unpatriotic. And guys like Jack Warner and uh, Louis B. Mayer, who are the, 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 the moguls called on the, the first day as friendly witnesses, are in some ways, uh, you can understand they're sort of gobsmacked that the, the, the government, which they've been cooperating with, and, and in the case of Jack Warner, had been receiving awards from for his, you know, uh, the patriotic films Warner Brothers had made, are now being called on the carpet for being less than patriotic for sort of employing you know, communist screenwriters and uh, making pro-Soviet films. And I think Jack Warner rightly says uh, that uh, you know Warner Brothers has done more to promulgate Americanism than any studio you know in California, and he's got a real point because uh, Warner Brothers during the Second World War, you know, devoted enormous resources to education films, propaganda films of of using. Uh, Hollywood melodrama for you know purposes of wartime education. Uh, you know, just think of a film like Casablanca or Howard Hawks's Air Force. So he's pretty flummoxed by this, uh, uh, and as is Louis B. Mayer, and they they both sort of uh, you know have have this attitude uh, even as they're you know assuring the committee of their patriotism and anti-communist credentials. Of uh, you know, does everybody here have amnesia? I mean, don't you remember, like you know, two years ago, the Soviet Union was our ally, and of course, we made a couple of films to support our ally. Uh, the most notorious were the uh, uh, you know MGM Song of Russia, Warner Brothers Mission to Moscow, and RKO, uh, uh, the Sam Goldwyn film The North Star. 
And these are the films that the committee is now saying, you know, prove you know, Soviet subversion in Hollywood. So the moguls, although friendly to the committee in the sense that they don't want to seem like they're supporting the communists, are, are also really insistent on the fact, of course, that they're good patriotic industries. And their representative, Eric Johnston, who had been appointed in 1945 to replace Will Hayes, the original head of the uh, Motion Picture Association of America, uh, and, and that's the point that Eric Johnston has, too, that uh, we're not, of course, a subversive organization. We're a good patriotic uh, organization, and that the committee is really out of line to question our loyalty and our patriotism, especially given our wartime record. A surprising detail to me reading your book was that Johnston, in a few months earlier, in June of 1947, after there had been some other HUAC preliminary hearings, both in Los Angeles and in Washington, he met with the studio bosses, and he proposed yeah. what, at the time in living memory, would have been called a policy of appeasement to HUAC, yeah. right? He actually proposed to them, well, maybe we should go ahead and blacklist the most fervent communists, card-carrying yeah. party members yeah. in our industry in order to protect everyone else who maybe was just sort of a fellow traveler, meaning they were sympathetic, but not members of the party. Maybe they had signed yeah. some petitions, etc. We want to yeah. protect all of those people. So Johnston, before Huack put everyone in the dock, uh, said he was, maybe we should be willing to do that. But the moguls, the studio bosses, they all said no at that time. Yeah. Absolutely not. So their motivation, if I understand correctly, is they were more afraid of the lawsuits and the headaches they would get from trying to blacklist anybody than they were, they were more afraid of that than they were of congressional interference at that specific time. Right, and part of it is that these moguls are independent businessmen who don't want Hollywood messing into their you know, payroll. Like, you know, we're, you know, and Eddie Mannix at MGM, you know, uh, fa you know famously, you know, said, we, you know, this is our business. We can, we can keep communists out of uh, art of our movies. What do you think we are? And, mo and many of these guys were dyed-in-the-wool, rock-ribbed Republicans and conservatives. Uh, so the notion that they were going to allow communist uh, subversion or, you know, overt uh, party proselytizing in their films is is pretty absurd. So one is just that they were these ornery cusses used to handling things themselves, and they didn't want Washington, you know, intruding in that. The other thing uh, in the background of this is sort of assault on Hollywood by the government that was, you know, far more uh, destructive of the studio system than anything HUAC did, which was uh, the uh, uh, the Paramount decree, which will come up the next year, which basically busts up the studios. Uh, integrated or a vertical um, monopoly on motion picture production, distribution, and exhibition, uh, which was sort of essential to the monopoly that the studios held over uh, motion picture production uh, in the classical Hollywood era. And they were much more concerned about seeming to be a cartel in restraint of trade, which is, you know, if they implemented a blacklist, that would uh, uh, support that argument than they were about, say, uh, the uh, uh, assaults from HUAC. I mean, the economic threat was uh, uh, you know, far more deadly than the uh, political uh, threat. And also, uh, California had laws that would protect uh, members of labor unions uh, from being fired if they engaged in certain kind of political activity. So the, the moguls had uh, some real uh, resistance to the blacklist when uh, Johnston uh, first uh, suggested it. 
And he's later educated about the problems of this. Uh, you have to remember he's kind of new on the job uh, in 47. And although he had been a very experienced businessman, he didn't really have much knowledge of the motion picture industry. Uh, Hollywood, uh, in 45, Hollywood realizes that Will Hayes, who had been president since the uh, cartel had been formed in 1922, was getting a little long in the tooth. And, and then the post-war era, you'd need this new kind of slicker, more globally focused uh, head of the Motion Picture Association of America. And Johnston really fit that bill. He's kind of uh, you know, post-war man in the gray flannel suit. Uh, not, not a man of the 20s, but a man of the, uh, the vibrant uh, uh, post-war era. And ironically, he ends up implementing the blacklist. You know, he, he's the guy that in the end uh, has a more restrictive regime than anything Will Hayes put in effect. Another surprising detail to me reading your account of the moguls testifying in Johnston in particular was, so a lot of what HUAC was going after was saying there's communist subversion being smuggled into the movies. There's this content that's going to undermine the country. So, of course, at the time, Hollywood for many decades was under the production code, which was mm -hmm. the group of essentially self-censorship they put together so that outside censors wouldn't mess with them too yeah. much. And amazingly, this was really amazing to me, the name of the chief censor of, of the production code for many decades, Joseph Breen, his name never came up once at the UAC hearings. Yeah, I, I know, and, and, and this is sort of really amazing about, about HUAC, and it's one of the things that even at the Hollywood Reporter, uh, Billy Wilkerson, who was the you know, very right-wing editor, publisher of the Hollywood Reporter, who supported uh, HUAC and supported the anti-communist purge, in uh, Hollywood in the post-war era, even Billy Wilkerson is kind of contemptuous of uh, the congressman at HUAC because they were so clearly clueless on how the motion picture industry actually ran. They didn't know the movies, they didn't have a sense of the structure, and they had no idea that Hollywood was strictly regulated by this self-censorship regime that you just talked about called the Production Code Administration, run by this strict Republican, conservative, anti-communist uh, Roman Catholic named Joseph I. Breen. And he was, I, I mean, as I think you know, people who know classical Hollywood know this, he was the most influential agent of ideological persuasion in Hollywood for 20 years. His word was law. Uh, and uh, he's the guy that you know injected values into Hollywood cinema. You know, it was far more important than any of the screenwriters they called uh, to uh, uh, testify before the committee. And Breen's name, you know, I, and I checked, the, I, you know, I read the the, the the transcripts, of course, and I also checked this with a digital search, which you can do nowadays. Didn't doesn't come up once during the hearings, so they have no idea who's really behind the values of Hollywood uh, movies, and it's certainly not Dalton Trumbo and John Howard Lawson, it's, it's Joseph I. Breen. And there's actually one, one dialogue uh, that, that's a very telling dialogue between one of the congressmen and Eric Johnston, as the, the congressman is sort of struggling with this concept of Hollywood censorship and self-regulation. And as you just pointed out, in order to avoid federal and state uh, you know, censorship or state censorship boards and the possibility of a federal censorship board, uh, which we never had in America, of course. Uh, uh, you know, the moguls get together and Will Hayes gets uh, together, cuts a deal with the Catholics 
to uh, produce uh, to an agency called the Production Code Administration. They appoint, appoint Joe Breen, head of it, in 1934. And everything goes swimmingly for about 20 years for everybody. Uh, but the congressman doesn't know that, and he's sort of asking Eric Johnston about, you know, this process of self-censorship. And he brings up was that something at the time was a, a pretty notorious case of a Memphis censor, a guy named uh, Lloyd T. Binford, who was really an off-the-charts racist anti-Semite who would not permit into Memphis any movie that showed anything like equality between the races. And he had just uh, banned a movie called Curly, a Hal Roach short about a group of little kids, kind of like the Little Rascals. Uh, with uh, And one of the little kids is a black kid who's shown playing with and being in school with the white kids. And uh, Lloyd T. Benford banned that from Memphis. And the congressman is trying to ask uh, Eric Johnston about, well, you know, your, your movies seem to still get censored despite this, this process. And Johnston says, yeah, and they get censored for really silly reasons. And the congressman makes a joke that, well, it's, you know, it, it kind of, it's not really a joke, but he, in his eyes or it would have been, that uh, I had to footnote because I knew the modern reader probably would not understand the veiled reference in uh, which, uh, you know, Johnston said there's, you know, there's an African or uh, a Negro child uh, in in the group, and that's why Benford censored the movie. And the congressman says he wasn't in the woodpile, was he? And that is a veiled racist reference to a phrase that was common in American vernacular at the time, which invokes the N-word. And when the congressman says that, Johnson snaps back at him, and the gallery hisses the congressman. And it's really a moment that says that, at least in one kind of progressive impulse, the committee is getting it wrong, that the, the, the civil rights agenda that Hollywood is promulgating has now entered a kind of mainstream, and the congressman hastily backtracks and kind of tries to take away his, his remark. Now, unfortunately for the congressman, sitting in the gallery with the Committee for the First Amendment is the great African-American actor, Kenneth Lee, who had just appeared with uh, John Garfield in Body and Soul. And uh, Lee is just absolutely steaming at this remark. And the, uh, the Daily Worker, the communist newspaper, gets an interview with him in which he's, you know, you can tell that Lee knows that these hearings are in some ways about more than communism. From Huack's perspective, the friendliest group of witnesses from Hollywood would come from a group of rock-ribbed conservatives in the industry. I personally certainly do believe that the Communist Party should be outlawed. However, I'm not an expert on politics or of what the reaction would be. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia or some other unpleasant place. This is a foul philosophy, this communistic thing. I would, I would move to the state of Texas if it ever came here, because I think the Texans would kill them on sight. <laughs> Those voices probably sound familiar to classic film fans. They're from the HUAC testimony of star actors Robert Taylor and Adolph Manju. They were both members of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, kind of a mouthful, or MPAPAI. <laughs> which had been formed in February of 1944 during World War II. What was the background of that group? 
Well, uh, there were a group of Hollywood conservatives who kind of really didn't like the notion that Hollywood, uh, since the 30s, had been consider, uh, configured as a kind of progressive, uh, in some ways communist-tinged uh, you know, group of artists and, and filmmakers that were you know, uh, anti-communist cons- uh, by a d- disposition, uh, conservative, uh, generally Republican, generally anti-Roosevelt, and uh, fervently anti-Soviet. And uh, they coalesce around a group of their own. Uh, of course, the progressives and the liberals had had all kind of popular front groups that they were members of in the 1930s, uh, most famously a group called the uh, Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. And in, as you noted, in February of 44, they get together and form a, uh, the Motion Picture Alliance, uh, which is a, a group of conservatives who uh, want, want to fight the what they see as sort of the overweening dominant progressivism and in some ways pro-Sovietism of so much of uh, Hollywood politics in uh, 44 and 45. And they're actually very sympathetic to the committee. Uh, They more or less invite the committee out there. They cooperate with the committee. They filter names of uh, communist screenwriters and progressive screenwriters uh, uh, to the committee for investigation. And they're quite willing to come to Washington to uh, testify against their co-workers. And uh, you mentioned two of the most uh, notorious or famous. Uh, One is Adolf Manju, the great character actor who was uh, really uh, extreme even by Motion Picture Alliance terms in his anti-communism. Uh, and although he, you know, very uh, articulate, well-educated uh, guy who testifies and names names at the 1947 hearings. And then the MGM star, who is you know, probably one of the most famous matinee idols of uh, the day, Robert Taylor, not as well-known or well-remembered uh, today, but when he test, uh, when he's called to testify uh, the first uh, Wednesday during the, t- uh, uh, the two weeks of hearings, the committee room is like mobbed, like every uh, young, young woman in Washington apparently is trying to get into the hearing room. You know, every Capitol Hill secretary calls in a marker to get, uh, get entry to the hearing room. Uh, you know, the girls are lined up all around uh, the, uh, uh, the committee and it's just sort of like a mob scene as uh, this uh, dreamy, you know, tall, dark, and handsome matinee idol uh, testifies, uh, Robert Taylor. And Taylor had testified at a preliminary HUAC hearing in Los Angeles the previous May, thinking his testimony would be secret. The, the committee chairman, however, uh, Parnell Thomas, or, you know, just a re- real publicity hound, immediately releases the testimony and immediately spills the beans that Robert Taylor had allegedly testified that when he made the pro-Soviet film Song of Russia during the Second World War, he was reluctant to do so and was kind of dragooned into it by the Office of War Information. Now, this goes out in the press and is sort of uh, the, uh, you know, one of the first times that HUAC really seems to, you know, have, have caught Hollywood in the, in the pro-Soviet uh, uh, partnership. And uh, Taylor is furious about this. He had been assured his testimony would be secret, and it wasn't. He felt really betrayed by the committee. He does not want to testify in, in the hearings, the public hearings, in October. He writes a blistering letter to HUAC 
uh, really taking them to task, uh, you know, uh, calling them some ugly names, uh, and saying that uh, he will not be a friendly witness if he's subpoenaed uh, to testify. He'll have to testify, uh, and he is subpoenaed, uh, but he will not be friendly. You know, he'll, he, uh, he, of course, he's not going to be pro-communist, but he doesn't really like the designation that he'll be a friendly witness. However, when he does testify, he, he basically he poses for pictures with J. Parnell Thomas. He you know, speaks out against communism. And I think most devastatingly, he, he names three names of a couple of actors and a screenwriter, Lester Cole. So he actually does utter names and name names. And, uh, and because of that, Taylor is, uh, is later you know, rejected by the progressive wing. And uh, the uh, MGM named a building after him. And uh, in, by the 1980s, uh, his name is so radioactive, they take his name off the building and name it after George Cukur instead. Another surprising detail for me about some of these witnesses was specifically Adolf Manju. And Manju and Taylor, as we heard in the clips, were saying, you know, the communists should all be sent to Russia, and if they, you know, we could go to Texas and they'd all be shot. Manju actually was opposed, publicly opposed, at UAC. He said he did not think there should be a blacklist. He said yeah. that there should just, everything should be open, no one should be allowed to hide in the shadows, and get it all out in the open, and then Hollywood, the industry, can handle it themselves, which kind of surprised me that he said that. Yeah, uh, and, and, and some of these guys are just sort of inconsistent. Uh, Leo McCary, the great director, is, is the same way, and he doesn't, uh, Leo McCary, uh, who later goes on to make one of the weirdest anti-communist movies, My Son John, uh, when he's asked, uh, whether Hollywood sh- uh, produce, should produce anti-communist movies. He says, oh, no, we should you know, just do our usual entertainment. Uh, so some of these guys are, uh, you know, are really interesting. It, it, like, one of the things I wanted to do in, in, in the book is sort of capture some of the ambiguities because when you remember this area, you're usually thinking of good guys and bad guys, of sort of the, the screaming committee chairman versus the, you know, the, the, the virtuous defenders of the First Amendment uh, uh, who are the Hollywood Ten. And it's actually a lot more complicated than that, uh, that there are a lot of people who um, manage to kind of walk an honorable line. And to me, one of the real heroes that I discovered is a, a screenwriter who's not very well known today, a guy named Emmett Lavery. He was head of the Screenwriters Guild. I'd written uh, you know, a couple uh, good exploitation wartime films like Behind the Rising Sun and Hitler's Children. Uh, he was a, pract- uh, he was a, a lawyer, uh, as well as being a screenwriter and playwright. And as head of the Screenwriters Guild, he really had a difficult job because if the Screenwriters Guild supports the Hollywood Ten, uh, they had a real risk of having the Guild itself just totally be destroyed. And, however, he also doesn't want to support the House Committee on Un-American Activities and purge the membership of people who refuse to sign a loyalty oath. So when he's called to testify and they ask him what was called the $64 question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party, Lavery decides to answer the question because he doesn't want to be part of the defiant Hollywood 10, but at the same time he doesn't want to support the committee, so he says to the committee, uh, well, you know, I don't think you have the right to ask me that question, but let's, do, let's you know, cut to the chase and avoid the suspense. Of course, I'm not a communist. I'm proud to say so. 
I'm a devout Irish Catholic, and you know my my loyalty is to my country and my my religion. And he delivers a really uh, nice set of uh, uh, statements. Uh, it gets some of the most positive reviews of the entire uh, 41 witnesses, and manages to steer the Screenwriters Guild through this very difficult period, because you know, as Slavery himself later uh, recollected, if he had refused to sign the loyalty oath that union heads had to sign under the Taft-Hartley Act, then the National Labor Relations Board wouldn't have recognized uh, the Screenwriters Guild as the negotiating agent for Hollywood screenwriters, and they would have lost the guild if they had gone with the Hollywood 10 agenda. And Lavery sort of manages to steer the guild through this very difficult moment. After most of the friendly witnesses testified in the first week of the hearings, and with the unfriendly witnesses starting at the beginning of the second week, another group of prominent Hollywood figures who opposed the hearings were making their voices heard and their presence felt. Hollywood fights back! This is Lauren Bacall. Have you seen Crossfire yet? Good picture. Against religious discrimination. One of the biggest hits in years. The American people have awarded it four stars. But the Un-American Committee gave the men who made it three subpoenas. This is Humphrey Bogart. Is democracy so feeble that it can be subverted merely by a look or a line, an inflection, a gesture? There was an editorial in the New York Herald Tribune which says it perfectly, and I quote, If the moving pictures are undermining the American form of government and menacing it by their content, it might become the duty of Congress to ferret out the responsible persons. But clearly this is not the case. Not even the committee's own witnesses are willing to make so fantastic a charge. And since no danger exists, the beliefs of men and women who write for the screen are, like the beliefs of any ordinary men and women, nobody's business but their own. As the Bill of Rights mentions, neither Mr. Thomas or the Congress in which he sits is empowered to dictate what Americans shall think. The group we just heard from was the Committee for the First Amendment, which we talked a little bit about uh, earlier, and you described them in your book as an ad hoc alliance of directors, screenwriters, and actors coordinating opposition to the hearings from Hollywood's besieged liberals. And they started, they formed really just before the hearing started, right? About a month before. It was kind of ad hoc. Yeah, yeah. And and it's by all accounts, a a totally sort of spontaneous reaction to uh, what's going on with the House Un-American Activities Committee, that the these liberals in Hollywood know that they're going to be the ultimate target, that they had all worked with the communists, and, and, and uh, although they didn't share the same agenda, that uh, if you were a member of the Screen Actors Guild, or the Directors Guild, or the Screenwriters Guild, or you've been making movies on any of the Hollywood lots, uh, you would have some association uh, with uh, the uh, unfriendly 19. So this group, uh, uh, spearheaded in uh, California by the director William Wyler, uh, the director uh, John Houston, and the screenwriter Philip Dunn, uh, call a meeting at Ira Gershwin's house, and uh, you know dozens of Hollywood personalities attend. Uh, immediately lend their names to, uh, to the committee. We should note that outside Ira Gershwin's house, uh, Warner Brothers Security is taking down the license plates of 
the actors and screenwriters that are uh, uh, co uh, coming together to form this uh, committee and then feeding the license plates to the FBI, who then, of course, can match the cars to the, uh, uh, to the people who are attending the meeting. And, uh, and, the, and the group forms, and they decide to launch a kind of three-pronged campaign against HUAC by publishing ads in the trade press, uh, enunciating their commitment to the First Amendment and their opposition to the tactics of HUAC. They're going to put on a radio show, uh, a couple radio shows called Hollywood Fights Back, in which famous actors would you know, uh, declare their opposition to HUAC. And they're going to fly over a plane load of actors and directors to protest the committee's actions on site in Washington, D.C. You also write about some tension between the Committee First Amendment leadership in Hollywood and the New York branch, which was headed by John Garfield, in terms of how they position themselves relative to the unfriendly 19, who yeah. are going to be called. Right. One of the things the L.A. branch was very insistent on, and this goes back to the experience of Hollywood liberals with the communists in the 1930s, is that they were not a communist front group, they were not there to support the Hollywood Ten, uh, that they were a group of authentic liberals who opposed the tactics of the committee and opposed communism. And that's sort of the, the tightrope that they wanted to walk. And, and, you know, and it was just like sort of a, a narrow in-between position. And Weiler, before the, uh, the actors and uh, screenwriters get on the plane, he actually says to them, look, if there's any of you who had been a member of the Communist Party or now a member of the Communist Party, get off now. We don't want that association. And Sterling Hayden, who was a member of the Communist Party, does not get off the plane, uh, which is something Weiler really didn't forgive him for. Uh, and so this group is really like liberals and did not want to be tainted, if you will, with association with communists. And, and this goes back, to, as I said, to the 1930s, when the communist wing of the Popular Front, after the Hitler-Stalin pact, starts adopting the party line. And so the liberals of 1947 have very clear memories of their former communist partners in the, in the Popular Front, who, when Moscow said, your position must change, obeyed the Moscow uh, uh, dictate immediately. And the two times they do that is in October 39, when uh, uh, the Hitler-Stalin pact is signed, and then in June 1941, when the Nazis invade the Soviet Union, and now suddenly again, uh, the, uh, the Communist Party line is anti-Nazi. Uh, so the Hollywood, that's where the Hollywood liberals are. Now, the group theater people and the Broadway contingent in New York, spearheaded by John Garfield, uh, have a little closer alignment with the communist Hollywood 10. And they're much more willing to lock shoulders with the, uh, with the communist Hollywood 10 and to associate their stardom with the unfriendly witnesses. And so when they fly down, actually a couple of days before the L.A. contingent, they're really much more in solidarity with the screenwriters. And that's one of the things that separates the Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall wing from the John Garfield wing that comes down from New York. 
The committee for the First Amendment members who flew to Washington, D.C., arrived just in time for the explosive second week of the hearings, which focused on the group of witnesses who very much lived up to their billing as unfriendly. We're going to get the answer to that question if we have to stay here for a week. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the that's basic principles the of Americanism. That's not the question. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his then answer you denied, to a question then you, which invades his, absolutely invades Then you right. deny to, you, you refuse to answer that question, is that correct? I have told you that I will All offer right. my beliefs, my affiliations, and Here's everything the else the to the American public, and they will know where I stand, as they do from what I have written. Stand away from the stand. I have written for Americanism for many years, and I shall Stand away from the stand. for the Bill of Rights, which I'll you are to destroy. Stand away from the stand. Mr. Stribling, you must have some reason for asking me this question. You, you can address the committee. Uh, I understand that the members of the press have been given an alleged Communist Party card belonging to me. Is that true? No, that's not true. You're not asking the question. I was. The chief investigator is asking the I question. Now, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I believe I have the right to be confronted with any evidence which supports this question. I should like to see what you have. Oh, well, you would. Yes. Well, you will pretty soon. <laughs> the witness is excused. Impossible. The two people we just heard being berated by the House Committee, and who did their own share of berating as well, were the screenwriters John Howard Lawson and Dalton Trumbo, two of the unfriendly 19 witnesses. Within those clips, we can hear two of the cornerstones of the strategy that was adopted collectively by the unfriendly 19. One was to fight the battle on the grounds of free speech, namely the First Amendment, instead of invoking the right to remain silent, namely the Fifth Amendment, protection against being forced to incriminate yourself. So how did they settle on that as their approach? Well, the reason they went for the First Amendment rather than the Fifth is they actually wanted to take on the committee you know, on, on the floor of Congress and to counter-argue uh, with them that if they remained silent, they wouldn't be able to articulate their opposition to what the committee was doing. And so they really felt that if they expressed themselves as free artists who were exerting their freedom of expression and rights of assembly, that they were in, uh, standing up for the First Amendment for the, uh, of the United States com uh, Constitution, and they could give a counter-argument rather than sit there as uh, you know, mute dummies uh, who had taken the Fifth Amendment. They would have protected themselves probably against uh, self-incrimination by falling on the Fifth Amendment, but only by uh, uh, making resort to the First Amendment could they articulate a counter-argument. And w when they're talking, you can sort of uh, hear them, as you, as you just noted, saying, well, I want to answer this in my own way. And the committee always wants a yes or no answer to the $64 question of, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? So they're filibustering, they're sort of meandering around the question. And then occasionally when you know, push comes to shove, they're uh, obnoxiously uh, uh, berating the uh, committee chairman as obnoxiously as he is you know, banging his gavel and screaming at them. And in the course of that week, he actually bangs his gavel in half. He actually has to get another gavel because he's so intemperate and uh, red-faced and angry that in a way, Jay Parnell uh, Thomas uh, is, is kind of the, uh, almost a caricature of anti-Nazi 
Nazi hysteria or anti-communist hysteria as uh, the uh, the Hollywood screenwriters are are testifying that they really get his goat and they really get 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 him angry and he he absolutely loses it a couple of times uh, with the uh, defiance, especially he gets like furious at Lawson and Trumbo. Now, for Trumbo's uh, perspective, and uh, when people hear, uh, hear Trumbo, he has that famous uh, last line, uh, you know, his kiss off line to the committee that this is the start of an American concentration camp, that the over the top rhetoric of the Hollywood 10 alienates a good deal of people in the middle. Because, of course, it's not a concentration camp. These people, you know, they all have lawyers there. They're all going to go through the court system. You know, the American Gestapo isn't going to come and drag them off to Dachau. And so even though what's happening is unjust, it's not of the order of repression that everybody has in their memory if it's 1947. I mean, mean, we're talking to an audience that knows about what the Gestapo really does. And so that over-the-top rhetoric alienates a good deal of the mainstream and even some of the liberals because it looks to them as kind of hyperbolic posing. Now, again, when you play those clips today, uh, audiences will applaud Lawson and Trumbo, and of course there have been movies subsequent that really celebrate them as heroes of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, but I think it's important to remember it did not play that way in 1947. As you talked about earlier, the general sentiment in the country at that time was still much more deference to authority. It was years, yeah. it was um, 15 to 20 years before the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, 25 years yeah. before Watergate. All that was way in the future. There was still Absolutely. And you know, the, the person who gets the biggest applause line uh, of the entire two weeks is the actor Robert Montgomery. He's really a fascinating guy, and I was disappointed there. There wasn't more that I could find on Robert Montgomery. He never did a memoir. And he had one of the most fascinating lives of the 20th century, besides being the great actor. He was a hero of the Second World War, and then later on he goes on to become Eisenhower's media advisor, has an office in the White House, uh, and, uh, and then goes into production, and, you know, actor, director, uh, producer. Uh, and... Uh, when he's testifying as uh, a former head of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, he has this uh, great line in which he says to co- the committee, uh, I, in common with millions of uh, uh, other American men, uh, gave up my career to fight a totalitarian ideology called Nazism, and I would do so again gladly to fight a totalitarian ideology uh, named Communism. And of course, the committee and the uh, and the gallery, you know, everybody breaks up in applause at, at that line. And the uh, and the reaction of the uh, the committee is that you know if we have people if uh, Hollywood is giving us people like uh, Robert Montgomery and Ronald Reagan and uh, and George Murphy, they are clearly getting the better of this particular argument at the time. And after 10 of the original Unfriendly 19 had testified, all very similarly with invoking their First Amendment rights, refusing to say whether they were members of the Communist Party, even though many of them were, or uh, pretty much all of them had been, at least. Um, mm-hmm. They also were all saying, well, I'm going to answer this question in my own way, which was part of the subtle legal strategy you described to try to avoid conviction on contempt of Congress charges, which, Correct. Was, which yeah. was a failing strategy, ultimately. And then all of a sudden, the chairman, J. Parnell Thomas, he suddenly ended the hearings 
after only well there was 11 who had testified as you write about Bertolt Brecht was one of the mm-hmm. friendly 19 he testified but he actually said he had never been a member so he was in a way almost yeah. kind of friendly for them but the 10 who had refused to say they that they had been members or that they were they ultimately became known as the Hollywood 10 but the other ones in the unfriendly 19 they just were never called to testify which was sort of surprising and random but uh so what were the circumstances at which the the hearings ended so suddenly you know jay parnell thomas like just didn't run a tight ship uh and he, a lot of the uh, decisions he made were off the cuff and in some ways inexplicable even by his own standards right so uh sometimes he'd let a witness read a statement or part of a statement uh sometimes he wouldn't uh you know, and you get the sense of, you know, whatever he woke up with that morning, he would kind of go with. And by the 10th day of the hearings, everybody's getting a little kind of tired. It's getting a little repetitious. Uh, they have made their, everybody's made the arguments the best way each side could. We've heard from the uh, unfriendly, the angry Hollywood 10. We have 10 Communist Party cards that we definitely know that these guys are communist and we've got the goods on them. Uh, the uh, the middle of the rotors have made their uh, uh, appeals. We've already uh, had all the great star power testify. And you also get the sense, and this is maybe unchronicled backstory Washington politics, that the Republican Speaker of the House uh, had called Jay Parnell Thomas and told him that this is really looking bad for con- uh, for Congress, that you're giving us nothing but bad publicity. We're getting a lot of bad press. You're running something like a circus. You know, the news cameras are there, the radio uh, microphones. It's It really is, is not looking like a uh, deliberate judicial proceeding. Uh, you know, pull the plug. And suddenly that afternoon, uh, that's what Jay Parnell Thomas does. He says he wants to read a statement, and he calls the hearings to an end. But he says, uh, I'm not calling these hearings to a total end. We're going to start them up again. But, of course, he never does. And one of the reasons he doesn't is that the next year he gets uh, uh, convicted of padding the salaries of uh, his uh, employees and asking for kickbacks. And in one of these moments that none of the Hollywood screenwriters would ever have dared to inject into a screenplay, uh, Jay Parnell Thomas ends up uh, serving time at the same federal penitentiary as two of the screenwriters who had been uh, convicted of contempt of Congress, Lester Cole and Ring Lardner Jr. in uh, Danbury, Connecticut. And there's a famous moment that, again, it sounds like it was scripted, but it apparently was not, because you get the same story from Lester Cole and Ring Lardner Jr. Uh, Lester Cole, uh, who was really a, a, you know, a great screenwriter and a strident communist, uh, is uh, uh, he, he's with a scythe in the Danbury farm uh, at the prison, and he's cutting grass, and he spots Jay Parnell Thomas atop the chicken coop, you know, cleaning out the uh, the roof of uh, chicken droppings and uh, their eyes lock and uh, jay parnell thomas says to lester cole so uh bullshit i see that you're you still got your sickle and uh lester cole looks at him and responds and and i see just like in congress you're still cleaning up chicken shit and it's like you know, oh come on somebody had to have uh, prescripted that but apparently it really happened and uh, it's sort of the, you know, one of the great taglines of the House on american Activities Committee hearings. 
<laughs> life imitating art there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's really amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and um, so, with the sudden end of the hearings, then things moved into. At the time, as you write about, a lot of people in Hollywood say, oh, well, this was a victory. The committee, yeah. the HUAC, went with their tails between their legs. But there was still the expectation, as uh, Thomas had mentioned, that there were going to be more hearings. There were going to be more people called. So leading yeah. into the Waldorf meeting, as you mentioned earlier, late November of 47, just a few weeks after the hearings ended, that was when Eric Johnston, the MPAA, put all the Hollywood executives together. They ultimately decided to implement at that time the blacklist of yeah. the 10 who had been um, – who were on their way to being found uh, guilty of contempt of Congress. Although, so the thinking at the time, the switch, as we talked earlier, Johnson had proposed back in June before the hearings to the moguls, mm -hmm. hey, maybe we should blacklist these guys. They all said absolutely not. Then everything mm -hmm. changed dramatically after the hearings. Yeah. Um, the fear of that the executives had at that time, I guess it had changed to, now they were thinking, well, we're going to have these headaches of, lawsuits coming up of yeah. the Hollywood 10 are going to be filing lawsuits against us, against, you know, the Congress and everything. There's going to be trials. And they were still thinking there are going to be more hearings. There are going right. to be more people called, more unfriendly witnesses. This is just going to keep happening over and over and over again. So that seems to be how their thinking changed. Like now what's going to be bad for business is if we don't kind of give in to HUAC and give them something to try to get them off of our backs. Right, and then the the Vox Populi uh, is sort of the sense of the average moviegoer. Uh, you know, there are a lot of letters coming into Hedda Hopper and other, you know, pro-HUAC, anti-communist uh, uh, columnists saying that, uh, you know, we're not going to go to any movies by Humphrey Bogart or Catherine Hepburn or other prominent liberals because, you know, we don't want to support uh, the communist agenda here. And we have to remember that the, a Communist Party card, you know, attached to your name in 1947 is not something that's going to bring lines at the, uh, the ticket window. And the committee had the, you know, they had the goods on those 10 members of the, of the Hollywood 19. They actually produced the Communist Party card. And uh, that, that's toxic and radioactive in 1947 in a, in a way that we might find, you know, hard to recapture. You have the uh, the Hollywood 10 who have really tainted mainstream Hollywood with a kind of Hollywood brush and you've got the Vox Populi saying we're not going to go to the movies and then you've got the commander of the American Legion taking Eric Johnston aside and saying you know we're going to picket the films that are attached to these names not just the names of the Hollywood 10 but the names of other you know prominent progressive possibly communist uh, actors and directors and screenwriters who are refusing to say that they're not communist, uh, who uh, are, are, are sympathetic with the Hollywood 10. And that's what really puts the fear of God into, into the studio moguls and to Eric Johnston. And here this sort of great hope for post-war liberalism and, you know, an international global outlook, uh, Eric Johnston ends up presiding over the implementation of the blacklist. A similar fate befell the Committee for the First Amendment, which was disbanded only a few months later, February of 1948. And the first big domino there was Humphrey Bogart, the most visible yeah. member. He and Lauren Bacall, they very publicly recanted or regretted their role in mm -hmm. coming to the hearings uh, and opposing the committee. That was in, as you write, early December of 1947, just a week or so after the blacklist was announced. Um, at that time, they were traveling to promote their movie Dark Passage, one of the noirs that they did together. Yeah. And as yeah. you write, they um, 
part of the post-war Hollywood reality was it wasn't just the moguls who had to listen, the studio chiefs who had partnerships with the financiers. Now the directors, actors, producers were starting to be able to create their own independent production companies, and that brought some more freedom, but that also brought financial pressures, business pressures, and that was really weighing heavily on Bogart as the hearings had ended. Yeah, and and Bogart, uh, although you know, basically apolitical himself, uh, he had you know contributed to uh, you know a couple of democratic causes. But uh, you know Bogart, right? He preferred to play chess and sail on his boat. He wasn't really a political uh, kind of figure. And one of the uh, the uh, uh, you know, interesting things about the Committee for the First Amendment is that he and Be- uh, Bacall become the faces of that, and they're kind of mainstream liberal types. Uh, B- Bacall a little bit more activist uh, than than Bogart ever ever was, and uh, Bogart ends up being the the face and the spokesman uh, for the group. And when he flies back from the uh, uh, the committee uh, hearings in Washington, he gets a call from his partner Mark Hellinger who's basically saying, look, if you don't get out of this group, we're not going to get the financing from the bankers in New York for our co-production deals. And that word gets back to him even more strongly when he uh, returns to, uh, to Hollywood, that the temperature of the town is now such that they do not want to be associated, not just with the Hollywood 10, who by then are toxic, radioactive, they're going to be tossed aside, uh, but with sort of a, a mainstream liberal position, the kind of New Deal Roosevelt progressivism that would certainly have been acceptable before the Second World War, but now has been tainted and tinged with the Communist Association. So Bogart uh, publicly re, uh, recants his position. He you know, famously says, you know, I, I went there like kind of foolishly uh, and uh, did a foolish thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I did it with good intentions, but I wound up with my picture on the front page of the Daily Worker. And it was on the front page of the Daily Worker a couple of times. And uh, that's the kind of publicity no Hollywood actor wants in 1947. So he recants. Catherine Hepburn recants. And uh, by February of uh, 48, the, uh, the committee dissolves. Uh, the Committee for the uh, First Amendment, that is. As you write about in the end of your book, the role of film noir in the retrospective look back at this era, the Blacklist era, is uh, is a very interesting one. That seems yeah. to have been maybe the one type of movie where some perhaps subversive content, which would have been considered at the time, much too subtle for anyone on HUAC to recognize, may have yeah. actually made it into some of the films. A couple that you mentioned, Body and Soul and Force of Evil, both of yeah. which starred John Garfield, who was ultimately blacklisted, and a couple of um, writers and directors who also were victimized by the blacklist, mm-hmm. Robert Ross and Abraham Polanski. So mm-hmm. what was um, what were some of the things that maybe they were able to work into those movies that fell under the radar at the time? But as we look back, we can see, oh, well, maybe they were kind yep. of... Yeah, of course, when we, we look back at the era, one of the ironies is when we kind of look for subversive content or content that's critical of capitalism, we don't see it in the movies that the uh, that HUAC might have gone to, right? Uh, and we certainly, when we look at uh, the pro-Soviet films made in wartime, we, we realize these are sort of the uh, what were called uh, intellectual lend-lease, one of the witnesses says, that just the way we gave the Soviet Union munitions and ships occasionally would make a movie that would buck up the Soviet Union in its fight against Nazism. But the post-war era, to the extent that it does have in Hollywood cinema this 
know, subversive anti-American content, the genre we see it in, of course, is is in film noir. Uh, that's where you know America is this shadowy, dark place, a place uh, that's in some ways has the you know sinister back alleys, and where capitalism and movies like uh, Body and Soul and uh, uh, Force of Evil, especially, where uh, American culture and American capitalism is really uh, a destructive, soul-killing force. And if the committee kind of had any film smarts, which they didn't. They might have used a different selection of film titles to talk about how corrupt uh, 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 American culture was in the eyes of certain screenwriters and actors. Yeah, critique of the excesses of what had happened or what was happening within the American system. Right, and if you look at Body and Soul, it's, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the fight film uh, is, you know, it's such a clear metaphor for kind of the the ruthless fisticuffs of, uh, you know, capitalist competition where, you know, one person is, you know, bloodied on the canvas. And and that's a, you know, perfect metaphor in the eyes of the communists for what, you know, post-war American capitalism is all about. And then, of course, the other thing these movies have is the sense of, you know, of, of pursuit and, uh, and persecution and the sense that there's somebody always following you uh, with, uh, with sinister motives. Uh, and so anytime you look back at those late 40s films, uh, I think we're often seeing them through this era of uh, post-war repression and that the, uh, uh, the resentment against it is bubbling up in these, uh, in these marvelous film noirs of the post-war era. There was also a symbol that may have made it into some of the movies we'll have in the link to the episode notes. Um, Eddie Muller on Twitter had pointed this out. Another Film Noir Foundation fan had tweeted at him some screenshots from several noirs of, in the background of many of these films, there was a Diego Rivera painting called The Flower Carrier. Rivera, of course, the great Mexican painting who was a very outspoken leftist and had clashed with um, American sponsors when he uh, wanted to have (laughs) neo-communist personalities like Lenin in one of his big murals. And this painting seems to have been in the background of many noirs. And Eddie said he'd noticed it in many, many films, like dozens of them. And that may have been um, something where just a subtle nod to the people who had lost their careers for nothing but an ideology that you know, people found offensive. Yeah, and some, some of those uh, leftist film right. Uh, 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 screenwriters and and directors did maybe plant, I guess today what would call Easter eggs in some of their movies, and ma- the D- Diego Rivera one, you know, typical Eddie. I you know I I didn't know about this until he he mentioned it, uh, or or had observed it that there you know was this uh, a mural in the background of so many of these movies, and it recurs with a frequency that could not have been accidental. So I wouldn't be at all. I've never seen any kind of explicit reference to that mural being posted in a film noir as a kind of Easter egg nod to, uh, you know, our, our, our fellow leftists uh, by putting a, the, the Diego Rivera poster there. But I would not be at all surprised. Uh, the screenwriter, some, some of the guys said they'd be happy if uh, somebody in the background were whisp- uh, whistling uh, the theme to the Internationale or something, uh, the, uh, the Soviet anthem. Uh, but, and that might be the, the sort of visual equivalent of that. 
So let's wrap up with um, an event you did in Hollywood for the release of your book. And the all of these events as we're talking about back to the late 1940s, early 50s, in one sense, it's a long time ago. But in another sense, it's really not. There still mm-hmm. are a handful of people from that era who are still alive and with us. And one of them, who was a member of the Committee for the First Amendment and came to Washington with the rest of them and ultimately was blacklisted, whom we've spoken about many times on this podcast, was the actress Marsha Hunt. And um, so you had an event with her and some other folks in Hollywood. Yeah, it was just such a privilege to meet uh, uh, Marsha Hunt. Uh, my, uh, uh, my friend Scott Feinberg, who writes for The Hollywood Reporter, and a very gracious lady named uh, Marsha Nassatier, uh, gave this uh, soiree in which uh, I was basically the prank monkey. And the real star attraction, of course, was uh, the actress Marsha Hunt, who was on the plane with the Committee for the First Amendment uh, when they flew to Washington in October 1947. And uh, she's the last surviving uh, member of the committee uh, who went to Washington. And uh, she's 100 years old now, you know, uh, totally gracious, totally with it. And I was, uh, of course, delighted to meet her and delighted to remind her of something that, uh, that she forgot. There's just a wonderful moment when the, the, the committee flies in that sun- Sunday night and then they attend two days of the hearings on Monday and Tuesday. And Jay Parnell Thomas, the committee chairman, is really, he focuses on the stars in the back, back rows more than the witnesses. You can tell he's really angry that they're drawing publicity away from his show just by sitting there in the back row. And at the end of Monday's sessions, he berates them repeatedly. And the committee, which had only planned to be in Washington for that one day, Monday, decides they don't want to appear as if they're run out of town by Jay Parnell Thomas, so they stay another day that Tuesday. And at the end of that Tuesday, and they kind of realize now that maybe things haven't gone as well as they thought they had. They go back to the uh, Statler Hotel and have a lot of press availabilities. And all the stars are talking to the big Washington reporters. And in the corner of the room, however, Marsha Hunt is talking to a group of high school students. And they're from a social studies class who had persuaded their social studies teacher to let them out of class that day and go to the hearings instead of attending their social science class. And uh, she's having this conversation with the kids as you know everybody else is talking to the high-powered Washington uh, reporters and uh, she says to them and it's a wonderful line that uh, you know that's why we're here in Washington going to these hearings we're just like you we're all we're all in a social studies class and of course the class is on American democracy and constitutional rights and uh, it's to me just a charming moment, and it says so much about who Marsha Hunt uh, was in 1947 and uh, who she is today. Okay, I think we'll leave things there. And um, so, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. And this is a, this is a really terrific book. Um, I, I, of course, uh, unequivocally recommend uh, this book. It's really excellent. I think everyone should oh, read it. It's very, thanks so um, much. It's very enlightening about just the, the details, the circumstances, what everyone was thinking at the time. Um, really great. Well, thanks so much, because like, uh, a lot of people had kind of done the blacklist, and you know, there's a lot done on this, but nobody had like, done a book just on those hearings, and that's sort of where I was focused on, just you know, that kind of post-war moment. Thanks again to Tom Doherty for joining us. 
Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Fillmore Foundation by signing up on our email list at fillmorefoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media, at Fillmore Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr, and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, please rate and review our show on iTunes, or you can contact us via email at podcast at fillmorefoundation.org. We'll be back next month with another episode, and until then, thanks for joining us here on Noir Talk. Thank you.